to say about our words. Coming into the chapter, uh, James has been sharing, has, has already shared two characteristics of spiritual maturity. These are things that God wants to be building into our lives. He talked about being patient as we endure trials and challenges and to do it with joy. And that's what we saw in James chapter 1. Then he talked about being both a hearer and a doer of God's word. And that was the characteristic of maturity that he talked about in chapter 2. As we come here to chapter 3, James is adding a third characteristic of Christian maturity. He's going to be talking about the ability to be godly and wise, gracious, and restrained in the words that we use. It's going to be talking about a spiritual maturity that produces godly words, wise words, words that are gracious and controlled in the fact that they're restrained. Now, he sums this up in verse 2 here in chapter 3, where he says, We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, that is, is mature, able to keep their whole body in check. So we'll be getting to that verse and talking about it in more detail in a moment. But if you're like me, as I've looked at the first characteristic and the second characteristic, it's something that is true for this third one. I have some room for growth. (laughs) I have some room for maturing. And so we're going to see some of the things that James lays out about this. But when it comes to this third characteristic, this ability to be mature, spiritually mature in the words that we speak and the way we speak and the motivation out of which we speak them, These believers that James is writing to, they have a serious problem. These are Christians, these are churches that are really struggling to communicate well. These are the individuals that are struggling in the use of their tongues. They are struggling in the words that they say and the motives behind the words that they say. I remember a number of years ago that we used to um, to have, when we were still in youth ministry, we um, always gathered a group of students that were interested in growing a little bit more, going a little deeper than regular youth group, and we would do a Bible study with them. And um, we had an issue in that particular youth group, that particular group of students, with gossip and cliques. And so I was praying about uh, what book or what to study, and and this is where where God works. I thought, well, I'm just going to ask them. Let's see what happens. And one of them goes, let's talk about James. (laughs) And I smiled because James talks about this issue of communication and words in all five chapters. And so we see this issue that the churches are having as we look at some of the things that James has said about communication and about the words that we use. Back in chapter 1, we saw that he says in verse 19, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And when we went through these verses, I mentioned that this is primarily about how we receive God's word. But I mentioned then there is a secondary application, and that is how we communicate with each other. And this is what we're talking about now. 
These are believers that were talking before they fully listened and understood. They're letting words come out of their mouth before they really think them through. And so it's creating tension. It's creating agitation and these angry confrontations between church members. And you continue in chapter 1 and verse 26. And James wrote, Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Being in control of our words and our tone is a vital part of the Christian life. It's a vital part, especially of the body life of the church. And it's, in fact, it's important in any relationship. He goes into chapter 2 in verse 12, and he says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. We should be speaking and acting with an awareness that the day is going to come when Jesus is going to hold us accountable. But he's not only going to hold us accountable for the things we do, but he's also going to hold us accountable for the things we've said. We're going to have this whole section in chapter 3. And later we're going to get into chapter 4 and verse 1. And he writes, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? These are Christians that are having these verbal battles. These, uh, these public arguments with each other. And they are having disagreements, and it's okay to have disagreements, but then they begin to have arguments that are fueled with anger, and then it fractures the church. Then he goes on in verse 11 of chapter 4, and he says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. So they had these public arguments, but they also had the whispering going on in the corner. These more quiet conversations in which they began to slander one another, question each other's motives and character. Their desire is to damage the reputation of somebody. The definition, we'll do this when we get there in a few weeks, but the definition of slander is not whether something is true or false. The issue is what's your motive for sharing it. A lot of slander is true, but it is being shared with a desire to diminish somebody's reputation. And so that's slander. Then finally in chapter 5, in verse 9, he goes... Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. Grumbling is that kind of murmuring where you've lost patience and you're agitated with somebody, so you start complaining about them with other people. And so these are Christians, these are churches, they've got a communication issue because these are all things that are going on within these bodies of believers. And maybe if you're like me, you can look at those and say, well, there's one or two of those things that might rise up in my life once in a while too. Now, obviously, if James repeats it over and over again, this is a topic that he feels is of vital importance. And that's because our words are extremely powerful. Our words can bring blessing at times. But our words can also bring deep hurt. Whoever wrote, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, was never the target of a bully. 
or if they have been, they're in denial as to the effect that those words have had. Angry and hurtful words cut deep. And if you're in a situation where you are the recipient of angry and hurtful words over time, they leave scars. We refer to it as verbal abuse for a reason. Because these kind of words are abusive. But the opposite is true as well. A wise word can bring guidance. An encouraging word can lift somebody up. A comforting word can begin to bring healing. A good, godly word can diffuse tension in a situation. A a good, godly word can restore a relationship that's been fractured. We've already used words to worship God. And there are times where we have the opportunity to use words in order to share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that someone can come to saving faith in Him. And so for good, and for God, or for bad, and Satan... Our words are powerful. Proverbs shows the contrast between wise, godly words and foolish, ungodly words. In fact, I recommend if you'd like to get a refresher course on what God thinks about words, read the book of Proverbs. (laughs) But just a few of them in Proverbs 15, verses 1 and 2, it says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise adorns knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. Proverbs 18.21 says that the tongue has the power of life and death. In Proverbs 17.27 and 28, um, it says that the one who has knowledge uses words with restraint. And whoever has understanding is even tempered. And I love this next one. Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. Jesus also had some strong things to say about words, too. As he was speaking one day to some Pharisees, he said this in Matthew chapter 12. He said, make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, remember he's talking to Pharisees, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good that's stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil that is stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. And so as we look at James chapter 3, he's also doing the same contrast. He's going to do a contrast between words that come out of our spiritual lives and maturity and those words that come out of our sin nature. And we're going to see three things as we work through through the passage. We're going to see accountability. The fact that God will hold us accountable for our words. We're going to see a challenge. And the fact that our sin nature often has a significant effect on our words. But then we're going to see provision. 
that in the midst of this challenge, God gives us the provision of heavenly wisdom from the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to see accountability, we're going to see challenge, and then we'll see God's provision. So let's start with accountability. God will hold us accountable for our words. He'll hold us accountable for our words. First two verses here of James chapter 2. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. I find it really interesting that as he talks about accountability for words, he starts with teachers and church leaders. And that's because the ultimate source of wisdom for us is Scripture. And so those who teach Scripture or those who are leading the body of believers are held to a higher standard by God, a higher level of accountability for what they choose to say and the motives behind the words that they do use. But this is a lot more than what a teacher or a church leader says in a, in a classroom, because that's not the main arena that he's thinking about here. The point that James is making here is that the uh, is about spiritual maturity. It's about spiritual maturity. He's asking the question, do you have the necessary maturity to be given the responsibility of teaching God's word and leading God's church? It's helpful for us to understand that in the Jewish culture, few men were held in a higher regard in the community than a Jewish rabbi. To be a rabbi, you went through a stringent process. To be certified and recognized as a rabbi, it took many years of study. It took many years of being an apprentice under an established teacher. And then you were considered a rabbi, that you could have your own group of disciples and also who could be a primary teacher in the synagogue. There was a proverb that said that if you were in a burning house with your parents and your rabbi, you should save the rabbi first because your parents gave you physical life, but your rabbi produces spiritual life. This high regard... For recognized teachers and rabbis undoubtedly had gone into the Christian church. Because remember, he's writing to people that are of Jewish background who have given their, their faith to Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And so they also have lifted up the teachers of the church into an elevated place. They were highly regarded and highly respected. And it's important that When he's talking about teachers here, it's more than just people that might teach for an hour a week. These are also men that were recognized church leaders. And so they have both a teaching role and they have a leadership role within the church. And James says to these folks, don't be too quick to aspire to the position of a teacher leader. He phrases it, not many of you should become teachers. Apparently, there are people in the churches that James is writing to that aspire to be teachers and leaders out of a desire for the status and the position. They have not proven themselves over time to possess the maturity and the humility and the biblical knowledge to have this role of a teacher-leader. 
And so by the fact that they are desiring the status and the position, they are actually displaying the spiritual immaturity that will make them ineffective. Now, given the context, these aspiring teacher leaders are some of the very people that are creating all of the problems within these churches. They're asserting themselves over others. They are creating quarreling and conflict. They are slandering people that they disagree with. They're murmuring about others. They're using words without a biblical filter that James has been laying out here. And when you're in a church, and it is the teachers and the leaders that are creating the conflict within the church, that church is in a lot of trouble. And so James says, hey, put the brakes on. You should not be quickly stepping into these positions as a teacher leader within the church. And he says, and be aware of this, you will be held to a higher standard by God. He says, you will be judged more strictly. To be judged more strictly, this word judge has actually kind of two steps to it. The first is you will be evaluated. It's judgment, it's being judged as in the sense of being evaluated. And so are you a godly, effective leader, or are you a self-centered, ineffective leader? And then it says God will now hold you accountable and, if necessary, discipline you. Because there is a consequence for being a self-focused and effective leader and teacher in the church of Jesus Christ. God will hold you accountable for that. And so James says, don't, don't aspire to this just for the position and the status. Now, he started with teachers, but all of us are going to be held accountable. As we get into verse 2, he says, now, we all stumble in many ways. When he says we stumble, that refers to moments of failure or specific failures to do what is right. It's the idea of a believer who is generally walking with the Lord and every once in a while they boom, they stumble. They fall into a sin. And so they stand back up, they confess it to the Lord and they start walking forward again. And you go along for a ways and then boom, you stumble again. And we know we all do that, right? And James says, we, yeah, we all stumble in our walk with the Lord. But then he said, goes on and says, but anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. And you say, no, wait a minute. <laughs> How can everybody stumble and others be perfect? Uh, James is the brother of Jesus. And here he's doing a Jesus. You know, there are times that Jesus would overstate something for emphasis. He doesn't want you to cut off a right arm because it's causing you to sin or pluck an eye out. His point is take it seriously. In this case, what he is saying here is that like that person in verse 2 that as a general rule is walking with the Lord and occasionally stumbles in the area of how we use our words, this is a person who consistently shows biblical maturity in the way that they use their words. In other words, if you see someone who's verbally under control and their words are godly and wise and discerning and gracious, that's a mark of spiritual maturity. That's the point that James is making. Out of a spiritual maturity and walk with the Lord comes this control of the tongue. 
In fact, if you can keep your tongue in line, if you can keep your words under control, he says you can keep your whole body in check. If you've got enough maturity to control your words, then you probably have enough maturity to have self-control in the rest of your life as well. And so James is saying, here's God's desire. He wants us to grow and mature in our walk with Jesus over time so that the pattern of our lives is the pattern of obedience. And when we do fail, we simply get up, confess it, and we walk on. One of the key evidences of that spiritual maturity, James says, is self-control over your words. The ability to control what you say and how you say it and why you say it. And while teacher leaders will be held to their own unique level of accountability, all of us will be called into account for the words that we speak, even as Jesus said. And so we're going to be held accountable. And these are words that should be coming up out of this spiritual maturity that God has developed in our lives. But we have a challenge. The challenge is our sin nature often has a significant effect on our words. Look at verse 3. First thing he wants to say is our words have significant control and effect over our lives. He says, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants it to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body. You put a bit into the horse's mouth. A bit weighs approximately two pounds. The average horse, full-grown horse, weighs 1,500 pounds. And yet that two-pound bit can allow the rider to turn that 1,500-pound horse anywhere they want to go. The rudder of a ship, he says, in comparison to the rest of the ship, the rudder is small, and yet the pilot of that ship can use that rudder to direct and control the ship wherever it needs to go. It can even go against the wind and currents if there's enough skill to tack the ship. But the pilot uses the rudder to make that happen. He says, in the same way, our tongue is a very small part of our body, but our words have a great impact on both our lives and the lives of others. But our natural tendency is to use words in a prideful and self-serving way. He goes on in verse 5, and he says, but it makes great boasts. It makes great boasts. It boasts about great things. In Scripture, this often refers to somebody who places themselves above others. There's a prideful arrogance in which they feel they are better than other people. Sometimes they even place themselves above God. It's the person that even when God has given them the opportunity and the ability to do something, they stand up and take credit like it's all about them. It's the type of person that will place themselves above others as being superior, whether it's in an ability to do something or their value to the organization or their significance to what they do or their intelligence or whatever that might be. And James is just saying we have a tendency to do that. And the tendency to do that results in our words becoming destructive to others as well as ourselves. He goes, continues in verse 5, 
And he says, Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. There are very few things in the first century that would strike fear into the hearts of people than fire. Now, in 2020, there was a large forest fire in California known as the El Dorado Fire. You might, be, you might have heard of it as referred to as the Baby Reveal Fire. What happened, literally, was a group of, of family members got together and they were doing a baby reveal. They took an overgrown firecracker or small fireworks, whatever you want to talk about it. It was about that big. And they lit it off. It didn't go all that high. And it exploded. And it gave out a puff of blue smoke. Congratulations, you're having a boy. But it was one of the worst oops moments in history because it started a forest fire that took 70 days and burned 22,000 acres. The greatest tragedy is a firefighter died in the process of fighting the fire. And that husband and wife right now is still going through the court system of California and they're facing up to 20 years of prison time. Now, this is the 21st century, and so that fire was fought by hundreds of men and women. They had aircraft, helicopters, all kinds of resources, and still it took them 70 days to get that fire under control. In the first century, none of that existed. And so when a fire started like that, whether it's in a city or whether it was in the wild, that fire burned until it ran out of fuel or until a rain came that was heavy enough to put the fire out. There was no way to fight it. And so they were absolutely fearful of fire, and it created devastation like nothing else. And so it's significant that James chooses fire in that first century setting to say that's what your words do. Our words can bring that kind of destruction, both to ourselves and to other people. In verse 6, he says it's a world of evil. That means our words can affect every aspect of life. He says that it corrupts the whole course of one's life. That means it can bring harm and destruction to every aspect of life. But here's, here's the most important thing. He said it itself is set on fire by hell. Here's the thing. The whole issue of our words and how we use them as believers is a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual battle. When you and I allow our words to come up out of our sin nature and have this kind of destruction, then we are fulfilling the purpose of Satan. Because Satan's aim is to be destructive. We will never fulfill the purposes of God using words that come up out of our sin nature rather than out of our spiritual lives with Christ. And this is not an abstract thing that James is talking about here. It's the reality of these churches, remember. They are having quarrels and fights. They are slandering one another. They are murmuring against each other. And James says, that's a fire being set from hell itself. 
And when those kind of things happen in the church of Jesus Christ, we are fulfilling the whole purpose of Satan. And that is to diminish and thwart the work of God. And so, James says, as we're going to see in a moment, that should never be. When all of this is happening, James goes on to say, we become hypocrites. We become hypocrites. Because in one moment, we're praising God, but in the next moment, we're cursing people. He says in verse 9, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt produce salt spring produce fresh water. It says we use our words, we use this mouth, we use this tongue, and we praise God. James probably is think, has in mind one of the customs of the, of the Jewish community was three times a day to say, Blessed be thou, O God. We praise God and we gather him this morning as we worship together. We thank and praise God when we sit down and pray over a meal. We praise God and worship the Lord during our morning devotional time. And James says, but then we use that same mouth and we curse people that are created in the image of God. And James here is talking about quarreling and slandering and murmuring against each other, of speaking before we listen. All the things that he's being in his book, that's what he means by cursing. When we just speak against other people. And he says, this should not be. Extremely strong statement. It's this slam dunk, it's wrong. (laughs) And there's no excuse. We often try to excuse when we get into a little slander or a little murmuring, don't we? Well, I'm just taking a stand on something that's really important to me, so I'm using strong words. Or maybe they started the argument, but I'll finish it. (laughs) I'm just somebody who's direct. I just get to the point. I just say what's on my mind. I mean, on and on these statements go. And James simply goes, hold up now. No excuses. It just simply shouldn't be. He says, fresh and salt water springs. He's referring to the source of our words. The fresh water of the words that come out of hearts that are controlled by the Holy Spirit. Salt water are the words that come up out of our sin nature. And he says, you just can't be getting water from both at the same time. Your words are coming up from one or the other. And as I was preparing this morning's message, that's the end of the paragraph. And I went, I don't want to leave us here. When this letter was read, it was read to those first century Christians, it was read in its entirety. And so they moved on to James three thirteen to 18. And the fact that God gives a provision for all of this. He gives a provision for this challenge. 
He gives us a provision so that we can speak out of a heart that's being transformed by the Holy Spirit. And so that as those words come up out of our transformed hearts, as it comes out of what the, the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives, and our words are godly, our words are wise, we are gracious to each other, and we're restrained. Simply means we understand when something is best, best left unsaid. And so we're going to close with just a glance at verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3, and we're going to come back to this section here in two weeks, but just want to leave you with this. This is what God can do for us. He says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. It's very possible that when James wrote about this fresh water in verses 11 and 12, he was thinking of the words of Jesus in John chapter 7. He was at the um, Feast of Tabernacles in the temple in Jerusalem, and he said these words. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him would later receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. When you and I are living out of our sin nature, isn't that exhausting? When we're seeing the effect that our words can have on relationships and fracturing things and leaving us separated from each other, isn't that exhausting? And so Jesus says, come and get living water. Initially, it's when we come to Jesus to receive forgiveness in life through saving faith. But when we get into the point where our sin nature is producing the words, then we have to come back to Jesus again in confession And he takes that clean, fresh water and he just washes us clean, refreshes our hearts. And then he says, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us begins to transform us. And out of those renewed hearts comes living water from within us back out. Living water in, living water out. And then with that living water, we refresh each other. the love and the graciousness and the wisdom and all the things that we can show to one another becomes the refreshing of God coming through us and then out and then we refresh one another, Jesus says. And one of the fruits that will come out of that refreshment are godly, wise, gracious, restrained words. Or as James says here, words that are pure and that bring peace that are considerate, that are humble, that are merciful, and bring good fruit, that shows impartiality and sincerity, that identify us as a peacemaker so that a harvest of righteousness is produced in our lives. We'll see more about that in a couple of weeks. Let's pray.
Father, we do pause now and reflect on this teaching of James. And Father, you desire for us to experience the refreshing living water of the Holy Spirit just flowing and refreshing and changing and transforming our lives so that out of us would come living water as well. Christ-like love, actions, and yes words. And so I pray that each one of us might be conscious right now of whether we are walking with you in a way in which our actions and our lives are coming out of these refreshed hearts and the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit or whether sometimes we're just giving into our own nature. That we might truly be growing and maturing and walking with you in a way that our lives gives this evidence of that closeness with you. May your word change us and then may our words honor you and bless others. And we pray this in Jesus' name and together the family of God says, Amen. Let's stand together and sing one more.